Hello, this is Dr. Nasir Gami, and you're listening to the Gami Psychiatry Podcast. Scientific, humanistic, and not the conventional wisdom. Hi, this is Dr. Nasir Gami. Thank you for joining me today for our next podcast. Uh, The topic of this podcast is the chemical imbalance theory, and specifically modern versions of it, like the serotonin hypothesis, and what it means and what criticisms of this kind of theory means. Um, This podcast grows out of uh, some discussion that happened on Twitter um, in relation to an article that was published uh, in the last few months in a major psychiatric journal that got a lot of attention in the the international media. Uh, And this article basically criticized the serotonin hypothesis of depression. Uh, It reviewed various biological studies and showed that the serotonin hypothesis really hasn't been proven for depression. Now, that's not surprising. Um, The serotonin hypothesis never was proven for depression. It was a hypothesis originally uh, from the late 1960s. It was put forward, in fact, by uh, a colleague of mine, Gregory Oxenkrug at Tufts University, uh, back then with his mentor from uh, what was then Leningrad, Soviet Union. Um, It got very little attention, partly because it came from the Soviet Union, uh, and because the tricyclic antidepressants at the time uh, had more effects on norepinephrine, so most people thought that norepinephrine, not serotonin, mattered more for depression. Uh, Joseph Schildkraut at Harvard had published in the early 1960s an influential article called The Monoamine Hypothesis of a Depression. Mono means mean uh, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. So even though he titled it that, most people knew he was talking about norepinephrine. And uh, the traditional tricyclic antidepressants, like imipramine, which was the first one, affected both norepinephrine and serotonin, but people focused more on uh, the former. And throughout the 60s and 70s, those drugs were used the most. And in the 1980s, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors began to be developed. Uh, Most famously, Prozac uh, was among the first, uh, fluoxetine, but also citalopram, Celexa, which actually predated it in the late 1980s. And those drugs were developed by pharmaceutical companies that were basically tweaking the, tri- the mechanism of the tricyclic antidepressants, and they, they um, created these agents that affected serotonin more than norepinephrine, and they're mistakenly called selective serotonin inhibitors, reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. In fact, they're not selective. The only one in the class that only uh, increases serotonin activity without increasing norepinephrine or dopamine is citalopram. Uh, fluoxetine, Prozac, has um, a good deal of norepinephrine effects, Zoloft, sertraline has a good deal of dopamine effects. So this whole concept that this class of medications is um, selective for serotonin is false and has been known to be false for years. But the pharmaceutical companies that developed these drugs um, managed to market them as selective agents, and people continue to repeat that falsehood and use the phrase SSRIs, whereas they should say simply selective, uh, should say serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SRIs, and drop the word selective. In any case, um, the serotonin hypothesis uh, began to gain an influence as these SRIs were developed and marketed by the pharmaceutical companies. So it's not surprising that the the idea follows the drug availability, which follows the uh, pharmaceutical industry development. 
And the authors of this review criticizing the serotonin hypothesis are well-known critics of the pharmaceutical industry and of psychiatry in general, especially in the sense of, of the use of medications uh, in psychiatry, um, or at least the widespread use of medications in psychiatry. Um, in, in a uh, comment I made in Twitter, I said that the review was really uninteresting and not new um, because it had long been known by anyone who was in the field who was active with research that the serotonin hypothesis and the norepinephrine hypothesis were both uh, not real scientific hypotheses, that they were false in the sense that there's, they had no real scientific meaning. A scientific hypothesis can be proven or disproven. Uh, you really can't prove or disprove either of those hypotheses because they aren't really testable. They don't really say, okay, this is depression, and this is what you would find in depression if it was purely due to serotonin or norepinephrine. Um, in fact, depression itself is not a concept that's well described scientifically in psychiatry. There is no such thing as depression as a scientific concept. Depression is like fever. It's a symptom. It's a constellation of symptoms. Depressive diseases or things like manic depressive illness, as we used to call it, or bipolar illness and unipolar depression, which were both part of manic depressive illness. This is a recurrent episodic genetic disease of the body. Those are diseases that cause depressive symptoms, but depression itself is not a disease. It's a set of symptoms. And in fact, these hypotheses were developed not to explain diseases that cause depression, but simply to describe the symptoms. It may be true that if you have manic depressive illness, for instance, in the last step of the disease, when you have a depressive episode, your serotonin and norepinephrine levels may go down, and that may contribute to your depression. And if you increase your serotonin and norepinephrine levels, your depressive symptoms may improve somewhat. That doesn't mean that depression is due to too little norepinephrine or serotonin, because the depression is caused by the disease, which is not depression, the disease is manic depressive illness. And that disease has other causes, not serotonin and norepinephrine. The serotonin and norepinephrine changes are the last step in the presentation of the symptoms. But before that step, there were hundreds of other steps that went on for decades as the disease developed from probably prenatal early genetic uh, beginnings through neurodevelopment in childhood, through further neurodevelopment in adolescence, and into the first episodes in adolescence or young adulthood. We know, for instance, that with manic depressive illness, those earlier stages involve abnormalities in many other aspects of the brain that have nothing to do with norepinephrine and serotonin. These include, for instance, second messenger systems that involve many proteins inside the neuron. It includes the circadian rhythms being abnormal. And there's a range of genes themselves that have been associated with manic depressive illness uh, that uh, is um, part, a uh, very early part of the pathogenesis of the disease. Those are the things that uh, cause the disease, not the very last step of your mono means going down. So the concept that the entirety of depression could be explained simply by too little serotonin or too little norepinephrine was obviously far too simplistic from the very beginning. If anyone knows anything about the scientific literature on the etiology and pathophysiology of depressive illnesses, 
That's why the serotonin hypothesis is false. That's why the norepinephrine hypothesis is false. It's not because we suddenly discovered it to be false. It's not because the pharmaceutical industry suddenly was, uh, was fooling everybody and suddenly we figured it out. It's not because a few studies in a meta-analysis can be published today that don't support it. It's because the whole concept doesn't make any sense. When we know that the diseases that cause depressive states take years and decades to happen and that they have their sources in genetics and that we've even identified the abnormalities in some of the genetics and some of the earlier pathogenesis that you need for the disease to uh, occur, which eventually can lead to depressive episodes later in life. So um, that's a big reason why I said I don't think that the meta-analysis really contributes anything, and I also don't think it means much either to support or oppose these, this, these oversimplistic hypotheses that really, that really don't explain the problem. By the way, it's the same thing with the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia. The antipsychotics block dopamine activity, so people for many years said, well, maybe there's too little dopamine as the cause of schizophrenia. No, that's not the cause. That's the very last step of a very long pathogenesis that has many other abnormalities, like glutamate abnormalities and genetic abnormalities that are the real causes of schizophrenia. Overall, what is the problem here is that in psychiatry, people have been taking what some have called a pharmacocentric view of illnesses. They look at drugs which are developed for illnesses, and these drugs are developed often by chance. They are found to improve symptoms of an illness. And when the drug improves symptoms of an illness, people work backwards and say, oh, okay, what's the mechanism of the drug? And when they find the mechanism, they say, oh, okay, maybe that's the mechanism of the illness. Well, that's not the way it works in medicine and biology. Take the example of aspirin. Aspirin affects prostaglandins, and by that mechanism, it reduces fever activity. Well, when you have a pneumonia, you get a fever. Aspirin reduces the fever by its effect on prostaglandins, not by its effect on the bacterium that's causing your pneumonia. So the improvement in the fever has nothing to do with the cause of the pneumonia or with the pathophysiology of the pneumonia, except at the very last step. Once you get infected by the bacterium and it goes in your lungs and it causes inflammation and you get uh, cytokines being developed and so on, very late in the process, your prostaglandin activity might get abnormal and that causes a fever to happen. But that's caused by lots of other causes earlier on. So improving your prostaglandins is not really the treatment for the disease. It's the treatment for a symptom of the disease. And um, pneumonia is not a problem of abnormal prostaglandin activity. Similarly, depression is not a problem of abnormal serotonin or norepinephrine activity. There are other biological mechanisms that are much more important. Um, and that's part of the, the reason why I think psychiatry has simply just misunderstood. Many people in psychiatry, I should say, have misunderstood uh, the relevance of the medications in relation to the causes and pathophysiology of the diseases that cause the symptoms that we're treating. And you should never mistake the mechanism of a drug for a symptom with the mechanism of the disease that causes that symptom. The authors of that review are, were anti-drug, anti-psychiatric medication treatment. Many of the supporters of that review, much of the public hoopla that followed, came from people who were critical of psychiatric medications. As many have pointed out, their serotonin hypothesis can be completely false.
that has nothing to do with whether serotonin reuptake inhibitors improve symptoms of depression, uh, and it also has nothing to do with whether depressive diseases are biological or exist. Those diseases may be quite biological and exist and have uh, no relation to serotonin as part of their etiology or pathogenesis. Furthermore, you can improve the symptoms of a condition uh, by having a drug with a mechanism that has nothing to do with the causes or pathogenesis of that condition, just as I showed with aspirin and fever. Um, so in a way, all the hoopla was much ado about nothing, but I think the take-home points are Obviously, it has nothing to do with whether we should use psychiatric drugs or not. That's a uh, totally different issue. Um, but uh, it is useful to point out that the mechanism of drugs is not relevant to the mechanism of the diseases that cause uh, the symptoms for which the drugs may be given. And a final point I'll make, some people have said to me in, the, in some of the Twitter commentary that, uh, okay, uh, you may believe all this, but the profession has been selling the drugs based on the the claim that there is abnormal serotonin activity as a core or central aspect of depression and depressive illness, and um, that's not true. And I would have to agree with that. That's not true. And uh, those who've been making that claim have been making a far too oversimplistic claim. And it, it is true that we see this in some major psychopharmacology textbooks, these far too oversimplistic claims, oversimplistic to the sense that we can, to the point where we can simply say they're false. The claims that when you increase serotonin activity or norepinephrine or dopamine, you're going to help depression. That's just not true. It depends on what the underlying cause of the depression is, the depressive disease, and it's much better to treat the cause of the disease than the symptoms. And we can do that with drugs like lithium, which are disease modifying and actually get at the cause of diseases like manic depressive illness that cause depression, that lead to depression later. I've discussed this in a prior podcast on symptomatic versus disease-modifying effects. Uh, so in that sense, I agree with the critics, but I disagree with them when they make a much bigger deal about this than they should, or when they claim that uh, it's an argument against using psychiatric drugs in general. Um, it is certainly the case that S serotonin reuptake inhibitors are not very effective for treating depressive symptoms. I agree with that. When you look at the clinical research, the amount of benefit you get for depressive symptoms is on the low to medium end, but it's not zero. And the rationale to not use them, uh, you could make it based on the symptom benefit being low, or you could make it based on the benefit being purely symptomatic and short-term, as, as I have argued. But you can't make it based on saying we shouldn't use them because the serotonin hypothesis is false, because that was not a... a a scientifically um, valid rationale to begin with for the reasons I gave earlier. And to the extent that people claim that it is a scientifically valid rationale, of course that, that uh, has never been true and, um, and isn't true now. And if we say, if we generalize and people use the phrase chemical imbalance to say that you have a chemical imbalance and this medication in improves that balance or increases this neurotransmitter to make that balance better, these are all vague metaphorical pseudoscientific statements. They do not have a basis in any legitimate scientific research. There is no quote-unquote balance in the brain. A balance is a metaphor. It's, it's a word appropriate for poetry, but not for science. Poetry is fine, but it's not science. Uh, there is no balance in the brain of any neurotransmitter. The brain is a very complex organ with positive and negative feedback loops with uh, you know, increasing the activity of one 
uh, neurotransmitters one place may excite the next neuron or it might inhibit it by stimulating an inhibitory neuron. So it's far too complicated to talk about some linear way, you know, some kind of linear way about a balance or of increasing or decreasing anything. So the chemical imbalance concept is, um, is false and metaphorically far too simplistic and not useful in general. Um, thank you for your attention, and uh, I appreciate uh, that you joined me today. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you liked it, and we'll catch you next time.